Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright, and since listening back to our last few shows, I've actually decided that we talk about the weather way too much, Carrie, so I'm not even going to mention it today. But I am going to ask you how you are. So, how are you doing? (laughs) I'm not bad. I'm really resisting mentioning the weather, but you're right. We definitely talk about it too much. It's probably a really good strategy also because these podcasts sometimes get aired weeks after we record them. So it literally means nothing when we're talking about the weather. And most of our listeners are not in Southern England. So exactly. Yeah, good idea. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I'm, I'm good. I went to the cinema for the first time in almost two years over the weekend to see the new James Bond. And it was the greatest experience. It was Ah. like the movie was over long and over serious and it was James Bond you know blah 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 made no sense at certain points and I just had the best time like we got popcorn I saw these like great sweeping landscapes of Italy there were fight scenes there was a big screen I was in a room with other people reacting to action it was it was brilliant so I love going to the movies is how I am (laughs) (laughs) how are you I'm just very, very pleased for you that you had that experience. I can't wait to see it. And I don't normally care about James Bond movies, really, but I'm, I am very, very jazzed for this one, basically because I want another excuse to go to the movies again. I'm interested to hear what you think. Okay. Because it's not perfect, but I had the, I just had the best time watching it. I yeah. <laughs> but I, I can't tell if that's because of the circumstances of our world right now. Right, exactly. But I don't know. I think that a good James Bond movie at the cinema delivers a very particular form of escapism Mm. that is very enjoyable and I think there's no shame in just taking the enjoyment and leaving behind all the problematic things sometimes you've got to do it I'm also excited to hear that set pile in Italy because I just got back from Italy and Italy is great (laughs) (laughs) is that your cultural recommendation for the day uh, basically yeah just well not even Italy (laughs) Sicily in particular just Sicily yeah that's basically how I am though how I am is it is great to leave England. It's just great to leave. <laughs> oh, yeah, baby. So, yeah, that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm also, I'm pretty tired, actually. So if I'm a bit croaky, that's why I've just I've had a busy run chairing events at Cheltenham Literature Festival this week. But they were all with really excellent authors. So I'm not complaining. It was very stimulating. But also everything, again, just being in in real life and real life audiences, packed in again and all the energy that you get from doing live events which I really love um, but also the travel and stuff it can be a bit discombobulating because we're just not used to it and so I basically got back from Sicily full of pasta and then immediately went to Cheltenham and was like where am I (laughs) I want to be in Sicily still Cheltenham is nice though it's very nice it's very nice it's very pretty yeah and the weather was good no rain this year oh my god there we go why can't we stay away from the weather (laughs) okay 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 I'm putting a stop to this before we get into (laughs) our theme today let's get business out of the way if you like you can support us on patreon by subscribing at patreon.com slash lit friction you will also get access to an extra mini-sode each month and have the chance to suggest themes that's right. And this month's Patreon mini-sode will be released in a week and we're going to stick our oars into the whole bad art friend Fandango, which if you don't know what it is, God bless you, remain in ignorance. And if you do, <laughs> and you want to know what we think, then you can uh, you can subscribe to listen. Yeah. 
So I'm sure any take we have will have been taken on the internet about seven times, but we'll try to have fun doing it. Anyway, I don't know why I'm underselling. Okay, never. (laughs) (laughs) You love to undersell, baby. I do. I just don't. I don't like to disappoint people, you know. (laughs) I want them to come in with low expectations and be pleasantly surprised. I think it's not a bad strategy. Thanks. Welcome to Minisode 25, and thanks for tuning in. The format for these minisodes between full shows is, for the next half hour-ish, we'll first have an informal conversation about the topic in hand and anything else that might come up, and then recommend some cultural things that we've enjoyed lately, with the usual musical interludes chosen by Eddie. So today, we are going to lean even further into our autumnal back-to-school theme vibe, which has been extending and extending, but um, we're going to expand it to talk about the campus novel, which is a theme that's been suggested actually quite a few times by our listeners, but most recently by our patron, Mathilde. So thank you, Mathilde, for for reminding us that we wanted to do it. Um, Because I feel like it's a topic that we talk about a lot, you and I, Carrie, and then and then have never quite cranked it into action. Let's crank it. Let's crank it. So it's a it's a genre that contains some really beloved books and also some like pretty contentious books, I feel. The first examples that spring to mind for me had a had a mixture of these two things. So I want to know what were the what were the ones that jumped into your mind? Yeah, totally. Like some of my favorite books are campus novels, but also I think there's a whole like mini genre within the genre of campus novels of white dudes writing them. Um, (laughs) and often writing like avatar professors who sleep with younger students kind of characters which is not to say all these novels are bad but it's definitely a a type of campus novel that I think has become a little bit more distasteful in the current moment so I'm thinking of like The Human Stain by Philip Roth even Disgrace by Kotzea which is a wonderful novel but features that plot line White Noise by Don DeLillo which I don't think involves the academic sleeping with their student. I don't I don't want to suggest that about Don DeLillo. But, you know, even Stoner by John Williams, these are all about older men kind of living an institutional life to some extent. But those aren't the only campus novels. A book that comes up, I think, on every show we've ever done in our lives, The Secret History is, is, <laughs> is a, by Donna Tartt is a campus novel. And I do think that also one of the exciting things about books in recent years is that there do seem to be writers who are taking on the campus novel and giving it a twist of some kind or giving it a protagonist we don't usually see. So I'm thinking of The Idiot by Elif Batuman, which I've been meaning to read for a while, but which features a bumbling Turkish-American college student and sounds like something I would absolutely love, or Real Life by Brandon Taylor, which again is a campus novel, but it features a Black gay protagonist, which unfortunately for the genre is very, very rare. Right. I really want to read that novel for many reasons. I think Brandon's a great writer, but also for that reason, because when we were sort of thinking of examples, I was like, fuck, it's such a non-queer genre in my experience of it. And that might just be that I haven't read widely enough, but I do think a lot of the examples that you mentioned were the ones that came to mind for me as well. And they're basically like white male academic wish fulfillment narratives, you know, Mm. or they're like a combination of wish fulfillment and also the extension of the, the the white male academic's deepest fear, which is aging into irrelevance and getting rescued from aging into irrelevance by having sex with a young woman who thinks your brain is absolutely desirable. And then being in, in Kotsea's case, being punished for that case and having to deal with the fallout of the irrelevance of man. Right. Which is definitely 
a very, very interesting setup and one that I'm I'm glad has been dissected in literature but I'm ready for the next wave I'm really ready for the new wave of campus novels where almost like maybe the big white whale isn't even in the room I want to read campus novels where we're already in this new kind of world I don't know that that's um actually I'm really up for some kind of like sci-fi campus novel and maybe I'm just thinking of that movie the faculty (laughs) (laughs) I'd be really into that yeah or like a, a campus in outer space yeah yeah escape escape is what I want Uh, but I think also that you know we're getting at something here which is that like there's something in the campus novel to do with sex and sort of sexiness and it maybe it's not just because of literal sex happening in in an illicit way or a complicated way between say professor and student but I think also like the secret history I mean there's sex in the secret history but the sex is not the sort of main thing but it, it you know it's murder it's intrigue it's scandal and universities are kind of perfect microcosms to explore the ripple effects of a particular scandal because obviously their campus is its own self-sufficient ecosystem or supposed supposedly but when I was researching the topic I discovered the existence of this book that I'd actually really like to read by the feminist literary critic and scholar Elaine Showalter who wrote this book called Faculty Towers the academic novel and its discontents and forgive me but I love when an academic writer has a naff pun in the title of their work I just it's a hangover from my days in academia and it always gives me a little boost so I'm thrilled that Elaine Showalter has once in her life watched Faulty Towers hours or at least knows enough of its existence to pun on it but this book uh which i actually haven't written down when it was published forgive me but she discusses a bunch of really early examples of the genre none of which i've read but things like the masters by the english writer cp snow which was set in the late 30s and set in an unnamed cambridge college and the action is kind of against the growing threat from nazi germany that's the backdrop to the story also contains a master's wife who may or may not be a liability, which is obviously a classic from that sort of time. And then the novel The Professor's House by Willa Cather, who I know you're a big fan of, which is about an aging professor feeling increasingly irrelevant. And often that novel is discussed as a critique of modernity. And I think that's something else the campus novel can really offer because it's set in a place of learning and a place that, you know, universities represent a certain, when you view them, as a kind of social metaphor, I suppose, right? Like the house of learning can represent evolution change, the chance to change your circumstances, but it can also represent the closed doors of an elitist world. And I think that writers who use the theme to critique those things are doing something very interesting. But I also discovered that apparently novels like Brideshead Revisited, which I think does a bit of that by Evelyn Waugh, But because it focuses on the student's perspective rather than the professor's perspective, apparently they're called varsity novels and someone on the internet considers them a different genre. But I think we can just lump them together. I think basically what we're talking about are novels that take in the university experience in some way, right? Yeah, I mean, you can categorize until the cows come home, but ultimately... I don't think that's that useful for us or interesting for our listeners, really. No, no. And I would maybe say that you can also include novels about boarding schools in this category um, because it's a similar kind of closed environment. So I'd put Prep by Curtis Sittenfeld or The Secret Place by Tana French in. Is that acceptable? I mean, you know how I feel about categories. That's totally fine by me, although (laughs) I do think that like boarding school novels that include sex between professors and students takes on like a totally different vibe you know 
yeah, you're right. There is a massive comparison to be made, but also because school stories set around schools are dealing with minors, it just means that there's a totally different, like if you're going to bring anything sinister into a school story, there's a whole other set of kind of sinister things you can play with and the symbolism resonates slightly differently maybe. And it's it's interesting you say that because when you think about novels set at boarding schools, it's usually looking at the students right much more so than the teachers and I think it's because if you want to talk about something illicit you kind of have to confine it to the teenagers rather than having it bleed into the lives of of the teachers as well yeah I mean otherwise you just are writing about pedophilia basically yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) but let's leave that behind let's shut that door in your opinion What makes a good campus novel? And what do you look for in a campus novel if you are going to go and read one? Well, you've touched a bit on this already, but the campus itself is a literary gift, isn't it? It's a little world unto itself with its own rules and hierarchies and places and traditions. And I think the best campus novels always exploit that unique and bounded setting because that is the stuff of tight and intriguing fiction, especially when those rules and hierarchies and norms get broken or subverted, uh, which is kind of what we've been talking about. I also think that a good campus novel is some kind of, I was because I was thinking, I was like, why do I like campus novels so much? And it's definitely the kind of intrigue of the world. But I think it's also because I'm interested in learning. Right. And the idea of learning and how we grow and change. And the campus is the place where that's at least supposed to happen. <laughs> and, and and it's not that I, I think that campus novels have to feature actual learning or like actual classes per se, but I think that it's impossible to write a campus novel and not make some kind of commentary on intellectual growth or lack thereof, even if it's just to point out the fallacy of growth or the fallacy of learning or the elitism of the institution. I think, you know, the novel has to confront those things. Totally. Absolutely. And as you say, that they offer such a great setup. I mean, listening to you talking then, I was just thinking of On Beauty by Zadie Smith, which really, I think, gets into that through the lives of its protagonists. And it's not a traditional campus novel in the sense that it's not necessarily so much about the professors and their students, but it's more about the lives of academics in a, in a slightly broader sense. So it follows these two academic families who li- whose lives keep kind of getting entangled. And I think that's something it's easy to forget about when you think about university campuses. It's easy to think just about the students and just about the professors. But of course, especially in America, you know, if you get tenure somewhere, you bring your whole family across the country or from somewhere else. And so there's this whole other ecosystem of the professors, partners and children. And then what happens, you know, and that's what Zadie Smith's writing about here. So you've got um, one of the main academics is called Howard Belsey, and he's white, he's British, he's an atheist. And he's a Rembrandt scholar at a college called Wellington, which is fictional in the, in the US, which is basically a stand-in for Harvard. And I think when she was writing the novel, she was actually a visiting lecturer or on writer-in-residence or something at Harvard. So the surroundings are also sort of like Cambridge, Massachusetts, basically. And he's there with his African-American wife, Kiki, and their children. And then, of course, 
his professional nemesis is this other academic called Monty Kipps, who's a Trinidadian ultra conservative Christian who has been based in the UK, but he ends up getting a job at this college at Wellington. So he moves and he arrives with his family and mayhem ensues essentially. But what I really love about it is that it takes things outside of the walls of the institution. So you have the chaos element of these two men's wives, these two men's children, and the way that they choose to interact with one another. And I think Zadie Smith writes family drama so brilliantly. She really understands the way that generational misunderstandings create great tension and kind of children can disrupt the hierarchy within the family as well as these sort of slightly pig-headed male academics disrupting hierarchies within their institutions. But also in classic Zadie Smith style, she does lots of things with the characters that are quite unexpected. And the light that she chooses to shine on institutional hypocrisy, for example, is maybe not the one that you might expect. Mm. So yeah, that's probably one of my my kind of favourite campus novels, aside from The Secret History, of course, which is doing something very different. <laughs> May I make a confession? Yeah. I never finished On Beauty. Really? Just couldn't get into it. Interesting. Yeah. Zadie Smith has actually said that she's never going to write about America again because she got so much criticism. People thought basically her depiction of America didn't ring true, or or Massachusetts in particular. So maybe that maybe that was subtly why I couldn't get into it didn't feel like realist fiction yeah well I mean that's the thing and obviously I mean I've never been to Massachusetts and I'm a foreigner so maybe if if Zadie Smith had a Londoner's perspective on America it chimed with me as a Londoner who's been to America you know yeah it's interesting though because I you know I don't normally really take issue with that I don't know and maybe it's because she's just so good on London that there was something that felt kind of unreal about her writing about Massachusetts. I'm not sure. Yeah, interesting. I read it a long time ago. I read it when it came out and haven't been back to it since. But I remember just being very drawn in. But I find, you know, her writing is so like that. And then if you don't find any barriers to the story, I think it's so easy to just be carried along by her narrative. When I was reading um, One Day by David Nichols, I was living in Paris and he got like a small detail of the geography of the city wrong and it totally snapped me out of it because I knew I was like that street's not in that arrondissement it doesn't make sense and it can be enough to block you from being transported I think so I, I get it maybe I should try it again because I do I love campus novels I mean everything about that novel I should love maybe my expectations were too high well if you do go back to it let's talk about it I would really right. love to know but like why do you think that the university setting is so consistently interesting because you know these campus novels they keep getting written thankfully and as we said people like Brandon Taylor are queering the whole genre which is fantastic but like why are we still interested do you think Mm, yeah it's a good question I think it's partially a, a cultural obsession with youth yeah we love reading about younger people and being nostalgic about our own younger selves and so that's why coming of age novels and novels about teenagers novels about college students are always attractive to us and keep being the stories that we tell over and over again. And university is a very particular time in many people's lives. You know, it's not a time of stasis. It's the opposite. People are figuring themselves out. They're away from their families for the first time often. And it's a time of turmoil and growth. And that makes good fiction. It's also the sexy factor. And in a very literal way. I mean, there is a lot of sex happening at universities. (laughs) (laughs) 
or or like sex thought about and danced around and we like that i think it's also a cultural obsession with elite spaces which is not to say that universities have to be elite spaces but i think we think of them as such and a lot of the campus novels that we've been discussing are about elite institutions and there's a kind of nosiness about worlds that are not always accessible to us yeah i just sort of find myself wondering do you think that it's a bit of an elitist genre like I wonder if it's excluding to readers who haven't been to university because I wonder how much of what is compelling to a lot of people is that they're looking for their own experience to be replicated or to be taken back to as you say that very particular time in their lives when they were a student and if you went directly into the world of work after finishing your you know leaving school exams if you went to school then is there anything there for you I wonder yeah I wonder too, and it's hard for me to say. I'd like to think that a reader doesn't have to have experienced a place to understand and get something out of it in fiction. But I also could imagine if I hadn't gone to university, I wouldn't be saying, oh, I love a campus novel. It's always down to the author and their generosity towards their readers. You know, are they writing an elitist book for people to relive their university experience? Or are they depicting a world that's opening out something and showing something new and fresh? Yeah. I'd like to believe that's true. Yeah, well, it's because it's funny when I think about the amount of kind of stuff, whether it's not necessarily, actually more probably movies and TV series than books, but like I know more about the insane, what do you call them? Delta Kappa Pi. What are those things called? Oh, um, uh, fraternities? Fraternities. Like I know more about a fucking fraternity and sorority culture than I ever wanted to <laughs> because of the kind of dominance of American culture like visual culture I would say mostly movies and and tv because that is an experience that I can't I cannot relate to at all having gone you know not only gone to university but spent much longer than most people should do at university because I stayed for further 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 education but like those are stories that I actually don't have very much interest in but they have their imprint on me and I really found myself when I was thinking about this theme like I would really like to read more stories about was set in universities that were not the elite version of the university. I'm really, really here for that. And I couldn't think of any that, I, that I'd come across, really. David Lodge, I haven't read any of his books, but he's famous for writing campus novels. He has like a trio that are incredibly famous. Oh, I think they're set at a fictional university, but I don't think it's Cambridge or Oxford. I feel like I should have researched that before. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like that there must be, and again, this is just a failing in the research of ours, but um, there must be a bunch of campus novels, British campus novels, that would have been written in like the 70s and 80s that would have been set in polytechnics and would have been looking at like the political kind of uprisings and stuff, surely, just as I'm sure there must be some great, great novels set, you know, that written in France, during, you know, set during the 68, May 68 uprisings. Like, there just have to be because those were such fertile and exciting times. And perhaps it's just that you and I haven't actually read that widely within this genre. We've just read what's crossed our path, you know? Yeah. And, and my reading is particularly Anglophone. Like, I can't think of any other campus novels that I, I've mentioned all English language examples basically yeah I've got one that's not <laughs> one up my sleeve that's also because the other thing I wanted to ask you was do you think there's such a thing as a subversive campus novel and 
to answer my question before I let you answer it, because it relates to what we were just talking about. My example of a non-Anglophone campus novel that is subversive is Roberto Bolaño's Amulet, which I think really does count as a subversive campus novel because it's subversive in form as well as in approach. So I know I've mentioned it quite a few times on the show before, but in case you're not familiar with it, it's a little novella and it's narrated by a Uruguayan exile called Auxilio Lacutre, living in Mexico City. She's an illegal immigrant and she makes money by doing odd jobs at the Faculty of Philosophy and Literature. And she announces herself on the first page as the mother of Mexican poetry. And in the book, she symbolically resists when the army invades the National Autonomous University of Mexico in 1968. So it's a campus novel about the political symbolism and potential of the university as an entity and as a place of resistance and rebellion. And it's also about Latin American history and literature and poetry. And it is 100% not about an aging white male academic who wants to shag one of his Mm -hmm. students, you know, which I think is like very, very great. Yeah. But yeah, outside of that, I couldn't think of, I haven't read any non-Anglophone novels that are campus. Yeah. And on your question of whether there's such thing as a subversive campus novel, it sounds like there is, but it depends, you know, how do you think about subversion? Like, can you be subversive if you're working within the bounds of an established tradition? And I like to think it's possible. And I like to think that writers like Brandon Taylor and Elif Bateman are doing that and rethinking who gets to tell this kind of story. And I think that's really exciting. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And also, you know, the more kind of examples that are coming to mind, like I think The Rules of Attraction by Brett Easton Ellis counts as a campus novel. And that's certainly not the sort of traditional one, is it? No. And then you've got Start of a Ten by David Nichols, um, which is a great story and a much more sort of charming vibe. Although I wouldn't call it necessarily subversive. (laughs) No, it's absolutely not subversive. (laughs) No, 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 not at all. What about Wonder Boys by Michael Shaben? Did you ever read that? No, I haven't. Yeah. Oh, my God. But also the big one, Possession by A.S. Byatt, which is obviously all about this kind of quite torrid affair and romance between academics, isn't it? I actually haven't read it. I have. And it's good. I mean, it's not that campusy, interestingly. There are a lot. There are a lot of academics, and there's a lot of research. But it, it is. Um... <laughs> You're really selling it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's incredible. It's wonderful. I I read it. I read it a few years ago because I never had. In fact, I was talking. I met somebody from Lincolnshire. Sorry, this is really a tangent. But anyway, I think it's the it's a it gives a beautiful depiction of Lincolnshire that I have had not before <laughs> nor since read ever in fiction. Um, but anyway, no, it's a, it's a wonderful story. But I think it's it's much more about reading and the mind than it is about the campus. I right. Interesting. So sort of again, like taking a bit of a sidestep from what we was sort of describing as being the core credentials of a campus novel. Yeah, yeah. But still great. Possession, read it. Yeah, I think you recommended it on the show, actually. Yeah. And I think I said I wanted to read it, and I still haven't. It's quite long, to be fair. Yeah, it goes quickly, though.
Hello, we are back, me, Octavia, and my friend Carrie, <laughs> to give our <laughs> cultural recommendations. So, Ms. Carrie Plitt, what's up first for you? My first recommendation is a TV show called The White Lotus. Oh, I've been which, wanting to watch that. I yeah, really recommend it. It's great. It was written and directed by Mike White. It aired on HBO in the US and Sky in the UK. And I really enjoyed watching it. it. It's a kind of, I don't think it will have a sequel, but it very much stands alone as itself. I think it's about six episodes. So you can watch it pretty quickly as well in the context of all of the other TV that is um, goes on for years and everything like that. But if you haven't heard of it, it's a limited series set entirely in a fictional hotel for the uber wealthy in Hawaii. And that hotel is called the White Lotus, hence the name of the show. And it follows the life of both the guests and the staff over about a week. We learn at the very beginning of the show that somebody dies at the end of the week at the resort. And that kind of, you know, that whodunit or how done it carries you along. And Mike White has said, like, I have trouble getting people to be interested in my art. So I just decided to throw that in at the beginning to ah. like hook people. And he totally did. I was like, oh God, I'm like a plebeian who needs a murder plot to, ah. to keep me interested. But anyway. Um, same, same. <laughs> but also, as you might expect, it's just an incredibly astute examination of privilege and late capitalism in this kind of beautiful setting. And you know, there are other shows like that, but I think what sets it apart for me is that in addition to being extremely uncomfortable and sometimes depressing, it is just very funny. Jennifer Coolidge, who's the, like, she, I mean, she's in everything. She's the nail woman from Legally Blonde. Oh, she's so is, great. She's so great. And she is so funny in this. Like, every scene that she's in, she just steals. She plays this incredibly wealthy single woman who comes to spread her mother's ashes in Hawaii. And she's, oh God, she's amazing. But also it just, I don't know how else to say this besides it has a very singular vision from like the dialogue to this weird, ominous, overpowering music to the set design. And I realized watching it, I was like, so much on TV right now, and especially on Netflix, I think, but but on other platforms and, and channels too, just kind of feels designed by committee. Like there's not an overarching vision. And I just so appreciated for better or for worse that this felt like it came from the mind of one person. And, you know, it had its flaws, but it had like, it had a vision and it had ideas. And it was like, it was like really going for it. And I was just so glad to have watched it. So I'm really glad I did. Yeah, so I read an interview with Jennifer Coolidge, um, who just generally seems like the coolest person, but she talked about this, which was where I heard about it and have been wanting to watch this ever since. She was talking about self-sabotage and she was saying the call came through and she'd been not really taking care of herself in the pandemic and almost didn't go to the audition because she was feeling crap about her you know, how she looked and how she felt. And a friend called her in the middle of the night and was just like, fucking get yourself there, stop this now. <laughs> and how actually making it had been this amazing experience. And yeah, she just sounded very cool. And she made, she made the, the project sound great. I've seen a, a bunch of quite sort of critical think pieces about it as well, which I haven't read because I wanted to watch it first. But it seems like it sparked an interesting discourse, which is also always um, something I'm I'm intrigued by. Yeah, it did. And I think it sparked a discourse because it's good, you know, even if it has problems, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, totally. Yeah. And also they filmed it. It's so like he, it was basically written because the pandemic happened because he, they needed a show where they could just film in one place. So they all filmed in this bubble in Hawaii, which is interesting. Like, again, actually going back to our conversation about the bounds of creativity. And this felt like, a, you know, it was, it was created for a very specific reason, but all the better for it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What's your first recommendation? Well, also, actually, thinking about what you were saying about it being um, quite a sort of singular vision, that's one of the things that I've been really enjoying about the TV program, also on Netflix, that I'm about to recommend. Um, I joined what feels like basically the vast majority of, of human beings on the internet at the moment and watched the first two episodes of Squid Game, Ooh. which, fascinating me, was watched by 111 million Netflix users in its first month, which is kind of wild and so thusly has knocked Bridgerton off the top spot, which I also find fascinating. And I'm already hooked. And I wasn't sure when I saw the trailer, I was like, wow, that looks fascinating. Also violent. I'm not sure if I'm up for violence at the moment. But John convinced me to give it a go. And actually the violence, most of it, not some of it I found a bit much, but it, on the whole, it's stylized in a way that doesn't actually put me off and reminds me of kind of early, early Tarantino, I would say like this, the sort of show design is basically like full dystopian Wes Anderson meets old school Tarantino, maybe a bit of Almodovar thrown in and then a little bit of kind of the comic book aesthetic. I mean, I know I've just compared it to a lot of other things and now I'm going to tell you that it's singular, but it is very singular. <laughs> and it's just shaping up to be really smart, really compelling. So if you're not familiar with it, it's a Korean drama series and it's about a group of people who are basically... In extreme poverty, a lot of them because they've oh, pretty much all of them, in fact, because they've got into terrifying debts and um, their circumstances are extremely, extremely bad. And it leaves them open to being coerced by this kind of mysterious, extremely handsome man in a very expensive suit who kind of appears in their lives in these different moments and persuades them to come and play what he describes as a series of games. And he's like, you know, if you play these games, you have the chance to win a huge amount of money and change your life. And because they're also desperately in debt, they capitulate. And then it turns out that, okay, the prize money is the equivalent of about 28 million pounds, but the games are basically scaled up very surreal versions of standard children's playground games like Grandmother's Footsteps, which also is just this clever thing because, of course, we can all relate to those games and they transcend cultural boundaries. You know, everyone's played a, a version of that. And it makes you realise also that children's games are quite sinister and surreal in their own way. Um, but basically in this setup, if you lose, you don't just have to get knocked out of the game, but you actually get killed. You know, the setup is this quite kind of like zingy subversive I suppose thing but I was a bit like well if it's just going to be like Battle Royale or The Hunger Games I, I'm not really into that but actually the second episode reveals that it's going to be way more kind of smart thinking and kind of have a wider scope than just that setup which is why I think it was really the second episode that got me super hooked and there are 
an intense amount of comment pieces out there at the moment and I've been avoiding reading them because I just kind of want to read it but already in these two episodes it's established a very strident critique of capitalism which I imagine will only get more intense considering the stakes but also some interesting character dynamics that I'm really curious about so I'm very very jazzed to watch the rest of it Um, I did see one piece today that I did read though that was saying that the it's kind of about the subtitle issue and how Netflix is basically not great at subtitles, which I've noticed from watching um, French and Spanish language programs where I can speak the language and I can see how much they're missing in the translation. And of course, I don't speak Korean and have actually, you know, not that much kind of knowledge of of the only knowledge of Korean culture I have comes through Bong Joon-ho, basically. So I'm super aware that there is a lot getting lost in translation. And this piece I read was saying that the kind of not great subtitling you really don't understand one of the main female leads is much less subservient than she appears in the subtitles. And that's quite important. Um, And of course, language is so rich and complex and it's very difficult job to distill it anyway. But I think that the kind of criticism is that they're actually doing quite a bad job. And it means that non-Korean speaking audiences are just missing some of the deeper punches, I guess, in the show. So I'm going to watch the rest of it with that in mind. And actually, I'm glad to have had that put in my mind, you know, because it means I'll be looking for visual symbols, maybe of a deeper narrative. But yeah, I'm also 100% sure that it will be the show that spawned a thousand Halloween costumes, um, because there are many creepy masked characters. And already one of the one of the characters, all of the um players of the games all the contestants have to wear these really distinctive teal tracksuits which i think is the thing that reminds me of wes anderson because it reminds me of um the tracksuits in the royal tenenbaums but there's already one of the characters has become a meme this older guy so you know you'll be seeing squid game around even if you choose not to watch it i don't think i'm gonna watch it i'm i know you say the violence is stylized but it just it it seems like too much for me i really have trouble with that kind of violence and it seems really sadistic. Yeah, it is sadistic. It's also a bit like um, some of Bong Joon-ho's cinema as well. There are characters that are there to represent kind of buffoonery and the grotesque in a way. So, yeah, if you're not in the mood for that, then you won't enjoy it, I don't think. But I just, I do think it's really fascinating that more people are watching that than than watch Bridgerton. I think that's kind of exciting. Yeah, I'm excited by the idea of it. Um, definitely. Not, not, <laughs> do not want to watch. What's uh, what's next up for you? Well, my second recommendation is an essay that was in the New York Times a few weeks ago called "Why Is Every Young Person in America Watching The Sopranos?" by a writer named Willie Staley, and I was already primed to like this essay because I was one of the many people referred to in the title of the article, who indeed decided to watch The Sopranos for the first time during lockdown, as our listeners will know. The show just contains multitudes, and I have remained hungry for deep and intelligent Sopranos content. And the release of the prequel, The Many Saints of Newark, which has not gotten great reviews, I haven't seen it yet, but it did bring an embarrassment of riches in that regard. Um, I did read a list of every Sopranos episode ranked. Oh my <laughs> And I God. didn't regret it. But anyway. <laughs> but even giving that priming, being one of the people watching the show, wanting to read about The Sopranos, I honestly think this is one of the best pieces of cultural criticism I've read in a while. It's an amazing close analysis of The Sopranos as a show. 
but it's also this incredible meta diagnosis of our cultural moment of decline and how we live in this moment. And also the prose is just top drawer, enjoyable, quality prose. That made me realize, I think a lot of even great essays don't pay attention to prose in the same way that this piece does. So if you haven't seen The Sopranos, I'm not sure how much this will resonate with you. And it has a lot of spoilers in it. So maybe don't read it. But if you have, I really urge you to go and read it because you will enjoy it and you will appreciate it. And, you know, I don't think it will be hard for you to read. I, I started reading this on my phone in bed, just kind of, you know, when you like click a link and kind of engage with something briefly and ended up reading the full thing. Um, and it's not a short essay, but it's 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 brilliant. So you tweeted about it and I showed it to John because I knew he'd love it when we just boarded the plane to, to Sicily and he kept interrupting me to show me paragraphs. <laughs> oh, that makes me so happy. <laughs> he like loved it and I, I cannot wait to read it. I've put it, it's one of like 150 tabs that are open on my <laughs> fucking phone with really great writing that I am yet to read. But yeah, I can't wait to read it. It's really good. Yeah. It's so interesting to me, though, that since finishing, you've wanted to consume all that stuff. I really haven't. Like, I, I miss I miss the experience of being in The Sopranos as a, as a viewer, um, but I haven't wanted to read about it. It's just that I've, it's so interesting to me, like, I, how different people respond when a, when a, like, a long series that's been a big part of their lives for a long time, you know, when it comes to an end and how you deal with the kind of loss of it. But, yeah, I'm really up for it. I deal with the loss by consuming as much cultural content about it as I can. <laughs> Have you done any like which Sopranos character are you quizzes? Oh, oh, I haven't actually, but I'll get to that. Yeah, I should. That's another level. Yeah. Also, listen, now that Y2K fashion is well and truly back in the shops, you two can dress like Carmela. <laughs> Maybe this is, is your next phase. I did buy a leopard print top. So, there you yeah. go. I want your your Y2K Carmela Soprano glow up to be in operation as of now, Carrie Plitt. Okay. Can I dress like Adriana though? Yes, of course. I want a cat suit. I would love you to own a cat suit. I think that's a great step for you. Okay, thank you. I have uh, a couple well, <laughs> that you can borrow. <laughs> I would love to. Um, what's your last recommendation? Well, mine actually, I mean, this it's not very on brand, I guess, in some ways, but it's to just go to church, guys. <laughs> no, I'm going to ex extrapolate from that. But basically, go into churches because you might just find something wild and beautiful to look at. And basically, this is influenced by the fact that I've just been in Sicily, which is a place full of extraordinary churches. And before kind of wandering into any of these places, it was just really powerful to reconnect with what it's like to be a foreigner and what it's like to be elsewhere because obviously it's been an incredibly long time since any of us felt able to do that and I really enjoyed actually connecting with my tourist self again you know and just being in a place where the smells the sights the tastes everything is enough cultural stimulation you don't really need anything I you know I had a ton of reading to do while I was there and I barely did any because I just wanted to be actually where I was you know and it's it's been so long since I felt that 
you know, that was like the first thing. But then the second thing was that when I'm in that tourist state of mind, I'm so kind of curious and open minded and I turn down streets and I get lost and I love it. And I walk into buildings probably where I shouldn't walk into and I go into churches. I never walk into churches randomly in London, really very rarely, very occasionally. But obviously also when you're in a Catholic country, there's churches on every corner and it's a religious tradition that has such a kind of rich artistic history, right? So the places of worship tend to be incredibly exciting to look at, unlike Anglican churches, which are often incredibly dour and not necessarily like uplifting. But yeah, when I was in Catania at the end of our trip, we we wandered into the cathedral there, which has, of course, the most extraordinary and bananas ceiling paintings, complete with an Illuminati style triangle with an eye floating in it, <laughs> just keeping an eye on everyone down below, which was like just thrilling to see. But also the thing that actually completely blew my mind was that on one of the tran- in one of the transepts, there was this really elaborate six foot tall, golden three dimensional candelabra that was adorned with sculptures. And if you put a euro in a box, it lit up. So first of all, I was just like, who's getting that money at the end of the day? Anyway, it was a tribute to St. Agatha, who's the patron saint of Catania. And she's also the patron saint of breast cancer patients and wet nurses and bakers. And also on top of all of that, people invoke her against fire, which is very pertinent to people who live in Catania because they it's in the shadow of Mount Etna. So she's also the saint that you pray to ward off Etna's eruptions. So, you know, she's dealing with quite a lot. She's a busy woman. Um, but this candelabra was covered in really brightly painted relief sculptures of scenes from her life, which is obviously extremely fascinating. But then on the corners of the golden arms that are holding the lights that turn on, are these completely mad little angels, or putti as they're known. Um, they're the size of actual babies, and they're just perching on the sides of the thing. They've got wings, and one of them is holding up a pair of bolt cutters, and the other one is holding a plate with two breasts on it. <laughs> and they're painted this like fleshy pink, and they've got brown hair, they've got pouty little red lips, and they were so kitsch and so camp and totally hilarious but they were also I don't know incredibly moving because this entire freestanding thing was just a reminder I found incredibly profound reminder actually of the fragility of life and the sometimes quite mad but also kind of wildly hopeful and beautiful ways that human beings try to make sense of these fragilities whether it's through religion or through art or through putting money into something so that the lights will turn on for a minute you know like it's all kind of it's all there it's all happening so I I came home thinking I want to bring some of that tourist mentality into my life here in a way and to the city that I was born in and to wander into to places and and be kind of more openly curious about what's going on around me, especially after becoming quite jaded about London because of everything we've all just been through. So that's my cultural recommendation. It's a bit of a bit of a weird one. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I do know exactly what you mean, both in terms of being a tourist and also going into churches. I love going into churches. It's one of my favorite things in the world and especially catholic churches when they smell like incense and there's like a choir singing and then and you look up and it rises to the heavens there's just nothing like it yeah it's really magical have you but do you do it when you're in london sometimes yeah if i'm if i have time and i'm walking around i'll just go i'll go into churches i mean english churches not quite as exciting. well exactly that's the thing on the whole yeah, the anglicans really um messed that up yes. they didn't they didn't really understand the wonder of god i don't no, think no no god is about sacrifice and 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there uh, the cathedrals, I, I like Ely Cathedral and York are and Salisbury are pretty majestic, but they they don't hold the candles to the churches of Europe. I'm sorry. No, no, I you do not need to apologize to me. <laughs> you should apologize to God though. Okay, sorry, God. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, that is all the time we have for today. Sorry, God. Thanks to Daphne Cunnizus for editing and to Eddie Knight for music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps us reach new listeners. It really does, and we will be eternally grateful. Also, we'll be back in two weeks for a full show with the very brilliant writer Natasha Brown. And until then, I've been Octavia Bright with Carrie Plitt, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs>